Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. Some of our audience know that in our podcast we focus on a specific area in China, and today I want to talk about the Tea Horse Trail in Yunnan and throughout Eastern Himalayas, and explore the possibility of turning it into a continuous hiking trail. But to do that, we all know how to find the shortcut, which is to learn from the masters who've done similar projects all around the world. And hence, we have today's conversation. And my guest today is Mr. Edward Norton, not to be confused with his son, the Hollywood star Edward Norton. So I'll refer to my guest, the father, Ed. For those in the conservation world, Ed Norton is a very familiar name. Ed's career, I don't even know where to begin. He's done so many interesting things. Um, first of all, he served in the U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam. Then after that, he pursued a legal career. And he was a federal prosecutor in Maryland. Then he was the founding president of the Grand Canyon Trust, dedicated to protecting the national parks, public lands, and rivers. He was also the founding chairman of the board of the Rails to Trails Conservancy, which is going to be a major part of today's conversation. Now, how is Ed related to the Tea Horse Trail? Because in the early 2000s, that's when Ed and his late wife, my role model, Anne McBride Norton, served as senior advisors to the Nature Conservancy, and they went and lived in Yunnan for quite a few years. They pioneered the Great Rivers Project to conserve biodiversity and cultural diversity in northwestern Yunnan. This later became the Three Rivers National Park. Ed and Anne and I did quite a few hikes together in the early days of Wild China. So Ed is intimately familiar with the subject matter. So Ed, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, I'm delighted to do it, May. It's wonderful to see you, and I always love talking about China. You know that. I love that, and always love listening to you talking about China. So, so let's start off with one of the hikes that you've done. I know you've hiked in many areas in Yunnan along the the Tihuas Trail or off the trail, but maybe you can describe one of these hikes so people get a sense of what this area is like. Well, I would I would say that I've hiked in just about every place in every continent in the world and. Patagonia and South America, and the United States, and India, in the UK, but I would say that Northwest Yunnan and the area where we lived and worked from 1999 to 2004 is certainly one of the most spectacularly beautiful. And we did do many great hikes there. We did hikes from from the essentially the Lansang River up and over a ridge into a beautiful valley called Yubung. At the foot of Kalagapo, one of the hikes that we did, and we did a number of hikes along the Lansang River, along the Mekong River, which is where the Tea Horse Trail runs. And I remember specifically one hike we did. I think we started at the village of Mingyong, right at the base of the Mingyong Glacier, maybe one village north, 
and then hiked for an entire day and spent the night at a essentially on a farmer's rooftop and then on up. And the trail is probably 500 to 1,000 feet above the river, right along a very precipitous drop from the side of the Meili Shuishan Range down to the Lansang River, a very narrow trail running right along that precipitous cliff. And seeing coming in the opposite direction toward us a long line of little horses with packs on their backs. It was a pack train coming down the horse tree road coming south. I'm sure just as it had been done for the last a thousand years. I mean, you got that sense. And we stood up uh, off the trail and let it pass. And so I remember that hike specifically. Yeah, no, the, the image you just described is, is precisely... Uh, it's timeless. It's truly timeless. Yeah. Indeed. If you see old photographs of the Tihos Trail from like 100 years ago, they look the same. Allow me to zoom back a little bit for the benefits of our audience. If they don't know intimately well this area that Ed and I are talking about, the Tihos Trail is really a historical heritage trail that spans from southern Yunnan, the tea producing area of Xishuang and Pu'er, all those areas where many people in the West have heard of Pu'er tea, it's very tropical tea producing. And each year in the spring when tea is produced, they get processed and put on horsebacks. And often they're processed into these compacted discs or bricks for ease of transportation and put on horseback. and these pack horse caravans would carry tea or other goods along with tea up and down the mountains, along the valleys, and on these sheared rock faces, these narrow paths carved into the rocks. That's what you were referring to, right? Yeah. And hike, walk for months and probably get to a depot and trading goes on. Another horse caravan would continue the journey all the way, take the tea up into Tibet. On return journey, they bring different various goods. But this this practice, although it was alive, vibrant for a thousand years, now is probably receding back into memories in many ways because high-speed rail transportation systems are built. Ed, I'm not sure if I told you, on my recent trip, I took a high-speed train from Kunming to Lijiang, in three hours. And wow. you can now go from Kunming to Rong Prabang in four hours in Laos. So because of these developments, this Tihos Trail is really um, left there and not much is happening to it. And I'm intensely curious and uh, interested in exploring the possibility of turning, connecting this Tihos Trail. and. Um, allowing or enabling people to really hike along it. Last time I talked about this, Ed, you immediately corrected me and you said, well, I, I was comparing it to the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail. You immediately said, hey, wait, the better examples to look at would be the National Historic Trails or the Rails to Trails project. And since you were in the founding days of Rails to Trails project, let's dig right into that. Maybe you can give us a little background of that project and what was the thinking process of how you got started on that. That would probably help me to think about the Tihos Trail. 
Sure. Rails to Trails is one example and one model. And there are others in the National Historic Trails system in the United States and the UK, where you have routes that had a particular historic use that people have traveled over and then have then become marked and identified and designated and then managed and protected to maintain that historic story. I mean, that's really what you're doing. You are creating a designation for these trails that the primary purpose of which is to tell the story and to give people a direct experience, although a modern experience with that story. In in the case of Rails to Trails, in the beginning in the, let's say roughly the mid 19th century in the United States, the United States and railroads began to build a vast network of, of railroads all over the United States, north to south, east to west, whatever the spike of the railroad connecting the east coast of the United States with the west coast of the United States was driven, I think, right after the Civil War in Utah, where they built it from the east and built it from the west, and they met in Utah. Great deal of that trail, interestingly enough, being built with Chinese labor, of course. Of course. There's a connection there. Um, And many of the railroads all over the United States being built with Chinese labor. Mm. In, In any event, beginning in about after the First World War, but really even a little bit later, with the development of the interstate highway system and trucking, the railroads began to fall into disuse. Rail traffic was both too slow and too expensive uh, because of the development in the United States of this interstate highway system. And so railroads began to abandon their use of railroad tracks all over the United States. So you had these corridors with ties and tracks laid, but no trains running on them. And what was wonderful about many of these trails is that, of course, they were built to handle locomotives and pulling many, many cars. And so they followed routes along rivers and up river valleys and over mountains where a railroad engine pulling cars could actually go. So they had a grade that was manageable by a locomotive. Many people saw them as corridors that we should, when the railroads left, that we should try to preserve and maintain because they offered a tremendous recreational opportunity Mm -hmm. and they connected communities and they reflected a history. And so the Rails to Trails movement began first and foremost as local people saying, here's a particular stretch of railroad that railroad corridor that we would like to preserve. We don't want to see it broken up. We don't want to see it going back to the original landowners. We want to preserve the corridor because it would be a wonderful recreational opportunity and it would connect city A with city B and it would provide a means of transportation actually that is an automobile 
and people could walk on it, they could bike on it, they could rollerblade on it, they could ride their horse on it, any sort of non-motorized means of transportation. Help me understand. So when, when these local communities decided to do that, did they have to remove the train tracks? Every situation was a little different. Exactly. They had to figure out who actually owned the railroad corridor, who owned the roadbed, who owned the track, who owned the tries. And then they had to figure out how they could get that into either public ownership, state or local government ownership. And then who would pay to remove the rails? Who would pay to remove the ties? Who would pay to lay down a new gravel bed or to a macadam or a paved service like a road, depending upon what they wanted to do. So it became kind of a, many local organizations did it. And then in the early 1980s, a group was formed, the Rails to Trails Conservancy, led by a really visionary lawyer named David Burwell and kind of a grassroots organizer named Peter Harnick. And they created the Rails to Trails Conservancy, the, the mission of which was to take these individual little local efforts that had been going on and pull them together as kind of a national movement. Because in the 80s, the rate of abandonment of railroad corridors was really picking up. The railroads were abandoning five to 6,000 miles of railroad track a year. And what we saw, Dave Burwell and Peter Harnick and the founders of the Rails to Trails Conservancy was that we really need to make this a national effort. There's enough commonality of the problems that if we create a national umbrella organization that can be a resource for these many local organizations, and if we can make this organization, the Rails Trails Conservancy, be a powerful lobbying and political force for the federal government, for money, for legal authorization, all of those enabling ingredients that you needed to do to do this, the financing, the legal authority, the grassroots organizing, and funding, money, money, money to do this, because removing rails and ties is not an inexpensive process. And then there was the issue of actually who owned it. So that was the basis of creating the Rails to Trails Conservancy to make this a national movement. And we did that in, in 1984. And so there's a book that just came out last year written by Peter Hardick, H-A-R-N-I-C-K, wonderful person who played a very critical role in this, of a whole history of the Rails to Trails movement. Wonderful. It is extraordinarily difficult. Like as, as you were describing the situation you were in, there were probably dozens and dozens of these local organizations and you trying to be the unifying force. It, it must be extraordinarily difficult. What were the necessary steps or what was the thinking process of how you assemble this conservation organization's team structures, you know, assembling the talent to move this forward in one goal? It really began literally with a, a group of four people, Dave Burwell, myself, 
two other peoples in a meeting saying, you know, we do need an organization to try to pull all this together. There is a big opportunity here. The railroads are abandoning more and more miles of railroad corridor every year. There's a great danger that these corridors will be lost, that they will be broken up. There was a growing belief that these corridors could be a alternative means of transportation to sort of get people out of automobiles and a much more efficient means of transportation to reduce congestion, much more healthier way for people to travel and connect and whatever. So there was kind of a convergence of these different sort of goals. I mean, it was recreation and health. It was, if you had a rail trail that went from a suburb into an inner city, it was a way for literally for people to commute to work without getting into their automobile. It was also a way to bring recreational economic benefits to small local communities. So really a way to kind of tie people together, Mm -hmm. tie communities together. We began with the, you know, literally a small group of us saying we should do this. And and then we did what you do. We formed a corporation, a nonprofit corporation. We put together a board. We went to foundations and we began to raise money. We put together a staff of people with different capabilities. And so the organization literally went from, you know, four or five people saying we need to do this into an organization that had a national membership of 150,000 people in a period of about five years. And these 150,000 people are individuals or? Yeah, uh, yeah. Just like the Sierra Club. It became a membership-driven organization. And how did you prioritize sort of for the first year or two to to say we're we're successful and we should keep at it. The issue of what was our goal and what was our priority was an interesting. Some people wanted a national coast-to-coast rail trail so that you could go from Cape Cod to the West Coast without ever getting off a rail trail. Other people said, no, our real focus should be projects that are within a 50-mile radius of major urban, suburban areas. Because very few people are going to go coast to coast on a rail trail, are going to make that trip. But the real use would come within on weekends of people who wanted to take a 50-mile bike ride or a 50-mile hike over a weekend or a two-hour hike over the weekend. So we ended up sort of focusing on both. And really, the, the way we prioritized were sort of the targets of opportunity. As railroads abandon corridors and as local interest in a potential rail trail project developed, those became the priorities. You know, the organization was founded in 1984. I haven't looked recently, but the last time I looked, I think there are now about 22,000 miles of rail trail projects in the United States. 22,000 miles of trails. And more than a thousand individual rail trail projects. So it's really different from the Pacific Crest Trail, for example, that all these rails to trails projects are 
all over the place、yeah. and blew me. And with the Tihuas Trail, I mean, right now what happens in Yunnan is everyone in Yunnan thinks the Tihuas Trail is so famous. It's like you know, you you grew up with it. If you don't know the Tihuas Trail, you're not a Yunnan person, practically, because your parents, your grandparents, everybody like draws it into your ears and memory. Yet. Yesterday, I was just talking to someone who speaks fluent Chinese, who's lived in Beijing for years and years. He's never heard of it. And when I first came to the U.S., no one has ever heard of it. Now, when you go back to Yunnan and when you go back to China, people in Beijing, Shanghai, kind of know about it. Say this trail is interesting; they would have interest to go hike it as a in as a way to encounter nature and local culture. But it's a very fuzzy idea. It's not precise. Like, where is this THT Tihuas Trail? They would say, "Oh, it's somewhere in Yunnan." Someone said, "Oh, it's somewhere in Sichuan." And then when you go to Yunnan, they would say, "Oh, it's in Dali. Oh, it's in Lijiang. Oh, it's in Shangri-La." And you just have to like peel the onion, go down, 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 all the way to this little village in Minyong. That's when they can say, "Ah, it's that path behind my house." What I'm saying is the awareness as a fuzzy idea in China is there, but information on pinpointing where it is is unavailable. And also, different parts in Xishuangbanna, they would have a Tihuas Trail for twenty kilometers. That's twelve miles. And then you go to somewhere outside of Lijiang, they have another Tihuas Trail for another twenty-five kilometers. It's very fragmented. And that's why I'm curious to hear how important it is for your movement to succeed in terms of setting the vision, whether it is to connect them all or just enable the abundance of such opportunities wherever they may be. I think you have to try to have it in a way both ways. I think you lay out from almost the beginning. The historic story of what the Tea Horse Trail was,、mm-hmm. and that's a wonderful story. I would bet most people in China, for example, many more people know about quote the Silk Road. They know that story. In one sense, you are getting the story of of the Tea Horse Trail to people in China's mind. The equivalent of the Silk Road, saying this is another great route that is part of the story of our nation, and here's what it once、yeah. was, and here's what it once did. Now, you know, our goal over the next 25 years is to try to make this a continuous, integrated trail, and in doing that, we want to create. And protect the sections that are the, in a way, the easiest, the most scenic, where the opportunity to really create long sections is there, and that where people will really want to hike. There are many examples of that in the United States. For example, do you take a look at the historic trails in the United States, which is now a much closer analogy even than rails to trails was? I mean. For example, the Lewis and Clark Trail 
Lewis and Clark Trail is the route that Lewis and Clark took from basically St. Louis all the way to the Pacific Ocean and back again. And that's a National Historic Trail. And it's, it's marked along the route. In some sections, it may follow a highway. The Oregon Trail is the same thing. There's a sections in Wyoming. There's a section where the, you know, the Oregon Trail, I mean, it wasn't one single track trail. It was actually several miles wide where all the immigrant wagons went over the Continental Divide. You can do this by section while still retaining the longer term vision and Mm -hmm. stitch it together as the opportunity arises. I mean, you would probably want to start in that place where the longest section of the trail still remains intact and it's not been broken up by roads or railroads or whatever. You want to do it in those sections where it is still as close to being in its historic state as it has been. I hear you. I think that's a very good suggestion. There's a wonderful trail in, in Scotland called the West Highland Way. It yeah. follows an old military road up through the past Loch Lomond. And that, that's, a, that's another wonderful example of a historic trail. Or the Southwest Coast Path along the coast of Cornwall. There are many examples. There's a, a trail that follows Hadrian's Wall across the UK, the narrow waste of England. You can hike from coast to coast. Yeah. Another example of yeah. a historic trail. Are there unique features that identify all of this sort of heritage trails? Like what are the essential components that would, in your mind, make a successful historic trail? That's actually a useful way to analyze the potential. So one essential component is that there is a story. There is the wonderful story of the T-Horse Road. Then the other very important component of it is that that story and the physical trail itself is, let's use the word intact. In other words, Mm -hmm. that you have a stretch, a length, a distance in which it is not broken up where you have some kind of almost a vicarious experience with the history that you're talking about. I think in China, another important component of it is that there is a kind of a basic infrastructure for people to access it and to get food and spend the night, all of that kind of thing. And you do have trails like the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Coast Trail, where basically people camp, but you also have over time Clubs like the Appalachian Trail Club have built small shelters and places where people can stay. Mm-hmm. I, I think in, in Yunnan, the, the Tihos Trail is actually better positioned in all of these areas because there are so many villages along the way villages, to find yeah. lodging and giving back to actually making it economically a, a worthwhile thing to do for the local villagers. Yes, is part exactly. of the reason. That was very true yeah. of rails to trails. I mean, the economic benefit of a rail trail to local communities was extraordinary. 
over the now 40 years of the Rails to Trails Conservancy, but almost every individual rail trail project from the very beginning has done an analysis of the economic benefits. And it always pans out more than building a Amazon hub. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't say an Amazon hub, but I mean, I'm just thinking of one right here in Washington, D.C., where I am. In the beginning of the 1820s, they wanted to connect the Potomac River with the Ohio River. And so they started digging the CNO Canal. And they dug this canal all the way from Washington, D.C. to Cumberland, Maryland. It's a canal that, a canal for canal boats that goes for 164 miles along the Potomac River, right next to the Potomac River. And there was a towpath where they had horses and oxen who would pull the boats up and down the canal, and they had locks and everything. Well, when the railroads came, they completely put the canal out of business. But now that entire length of that towpath is 164 miles. You can walk from Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland, 168 miles and never cross a road. Perfect example. And with enormous benefits to all those little towns in West Virginia and Maryland along the way. Look at the High Line in New York. The High Line runs from the meatpacking district to the up to the railroad yards now. That was a rail trail that was two stories up that ran down the west side of Manhattan to bring produce down into Manhattan, in, into the meatpacking yeah. district. The railroads abandoned it. We converted it into a rail trail. It cost $90 million. But the investment in West Side New York is over 900 million. It's a 10 to one ratio. And I've actually jogged on both of these trails that you're talking about. They are just such a fantastic retreat. And in, in fact, it's not just a retreat, it's a interesting, almost a passage where you could find solitude jogging on your own, but yet you are in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the city. So it's a, yeah. it's a very unique, I loved it. How important was marketing as part of your mission? Very, very important because that's the way we built that membership of 150,000. We built it by direct mail marketing. A lot of that membership in the early days was done through direct mail. I'm sure now it's done much more through social media, but it became yeah. a membership organization. So marketing was very important. Okay. Well, very helpful. Any specific ideas, thoughts that you want to sum up? Any advice you have how to go about this T-horse trail? (laughs) It all begins with a individual or a group of individual who just says, you know, the Appalachian Trail was the idea of one or two people. And they kept at it for 20 or 30 years, really. And same thing with all of these trails are the work of individual people who think this particular trail and this particular place and this particular story are important. And then that group of people begins to sort of expand the the group of people and the interest in that. And they find 
champions in government and champions in the media and champions in the press. They find people who will represent the idea. Thank you, Ed. This is super, super inspiring. Even yeah. though it sounds so quiet and we are sort of talking about this grand idea, I think you are totally right. The first step to hike it, the first step to talk about it, the first step to even think about it and read about it. Yeah. You know? I yeah. gotta let you go. I ran over your time. No, that's okay. Wonderful to see inspiring. you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.